chapter 23 of Acts, Paul now is ready to stand before the members of the Sanhedrin. Um, you know the situation. He had longed to get to Jerusalem. Agabus was, uh, the prophet was telling him, and Paul said the Holy Spirit was telling him, bonds and afflictions awaited him. He comes to Jerusalem, brings the offering for the Jerusalem church from the Gentiles. Um, James encourages him to be part of paying for the sacrifices for several men who had taken a vow. Paul agrees to do that, goes through the purification and so forth. And then when he's up in the temple, uh, the Asian Jews, no doubt from Ephesus, recognize him and start a riot and said, he, Lord, he's teaching everybody to turn away from Moses. And uh, he's brought Gentiles into the sanctuary and a riot breaks out. They drag him outside. They start to beat him. And then the centurions come down with the tribune who's there in the Antonio Fortress. It's part of uh, the northwestern corner of the Temple Mount. When we go to Israel, and we're going next year, by the way, in 23, you want to sign up. Uh, the world could end by then. Then we'll be coming to Jerusalem from above instead of across. But um, the... The Romans come down because they'll have nothing to do with riots. And, and the, the, the legionnaire, the centurion, uh, the tribune, they would be in trouble with the Roman government if the Roman government heard they allowed something like that to take place. So they're on top of it quickly all of the time. So they come down and grab Paul and trying to figure out what's going on. Everybody's screaming and the crowd is so out of control. They lift Paul up. They have to carry him up into the Antonio. Again, on the way up, Paul speaks to the tribune in Greek. And his Greek was so proper, it freaked out the tribune. Everything stopped. He said, you speak Greek? He said, yeah. He said, I thought you were this Egyptian. Started these rights. He said, an Egyptian? I'm a Jew. What are you talking about? So he said, can I talk to them? And, and the tribunes gave him leave. And as he spoke to them in Aramaic, so the tribune didn't understand, they listened intently because he was speaking in, in their tongue. And then finally gets to the point where saying God had sent him to the Gentiles. And when they heard that, of course, they go off the deep end and they're throwing dust in the air and they're tearing their clothes and so forth. And again, the, the tribune and the centurions get him into the fortress. The tribune says, this is not good. He said, take the guy, scourge him, get the information out of him. We need, I don't know what in the world's going on. So the centurion, again, 100 men under him, is getting ready to scourge Paul. And Paul says, is it legal for you to scourge a Roman citizen? He looks at him. He leaves the scene, goes and tells the, lead, the tribune. The, the tribune's got a 1,000 men under him, 10 centurions, each with 100 men. The tribune says, he's a citizen? He goes and he said to Paul, you're a citizen? He said, yes. And he said, I paid a lot of money to get my citizenship. And Paul said, I was freeborn. And then, they, of course, they take the chains off because it's illegal to chain a Roman citizen. The tribune's freaked out. And he's got to, you know, if he gets reported to his superiors having chained a Roman, that was illegal. So he says, I've got to figure out what's going on. So this chapter 23 is where he then goes down the next day to, and he calls the, the religious leaders to come to him. This takes place not at the place where the, San, where the Sanhedrin meets, but there are members of the Sanhedrin that come to the bottom part of the Antonio Fortress where he's going to meet with them and question them and let Paul talk and try to figure out what's going on. Again, I have this book in my office about this thick. I'll never read the whole thing. But the whole thing is on the Roman legions and the things they experience and it goes from the Gauls to the Saxons you know all across from the when it was a Roman Republic how it developed but there's and and there's kind of a brief brief report that the Roman soldiers filed in Rome over different things and there's one chapter called the riot in Jerusalem uh, there's another one on 
the, the taking of Masada. There's another chapter on 70 AD and the things that happened with Titus Vespasian as the cities leveled. But this, uh, again, I read part of it before. This is kind of uh, telling us about this scene. And it says that next day he took him before the Sanhedrin. This is a Roman report now the Supreme Jewish Religious Council to determine what charges they wished to lay against Paul. For the man had not broken any Roman law. When Paul revealed to the Sanhedrin that he had been raised a Pharisee, a Jewish sect which believes in the resurrection, dissension broke out between the Sanhedrin's Pharisees and Sadducee members. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection as the Jewish argument raged, Lysias, our tribune, returned Paul to the Antonio Fortress. Paul had a sister living in Jerusalem, and later that day her son learned that more than 40 Sadducees had vowed not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. The young man was admitted to the Antonio to visit his uncle, and when he told Paul about the murder plot, Paul informed the camp prefect Prefect Lysias decided that the best way to avert trouble was to spirit Paul out of Jerusalem and send him to the procurator of Judea, Antonius Felix at Caesarea, and let him decide the Jews' fate. Accordingly, that evening, Lysias had two of his centurions assemble an escort from Roman troops stationed at Jerusalem. This comprised two centuries of legionnaires, uh, two centuries of auxiliary spearmen, and 70 cavalrymen, 470 personnel. And as soon as dark fell in the third Roman hour of the night, uh, roughly between 7 and 8.15 p.m., Paul was led from the Antonio, placed on a mule, with his escort around him, taken from the city. The centurion in charge took him and a letter from Lysias, which urged procurator Felix to decide what should be done. That night, the party traveled as far as Antipatris in the Judean hills. At dawn, the foot soldiers returned to Jerusalem while the cavalry continued on to Caesarea with Paul. Paul was kept at Caesarea for over a year in AD 59 he asserted his right as a Roman citizen to appeal directly to the emperor and was sent to Rome with other prisoners. They were escorted by a centurion, Julius, and soldiers who were uh, presumably from the Third Gallica Legion. After surviving a shipwreck on the Maltese coast, prisoners and escort would arrive in Rome A.D. 60. According to the Christian tradition, Paul was released by Nero only to be executed in Rome on other charges several years later. This is in a Roman history book. So um, we're going to look at the more accurate record written by Luke tonight and get uh, the perspective of someone who's born by the spirit instead of just the historian. It tells us in verse 30 of chapter 22, on the morrow, because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, now interesting, he's going to speak in Greek, no doubt, so the, 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 the centurion and the, the tribune know what he's saying. And it seems like the tribune comes down with him alone. The soldiers are right above them. He wants this to be peaceable, non-threatening. So he comes down and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren. Now, he's earnestly beholding. He hadn't been in Jerusalem now for over 20 years. It's been probably around 25 since he got letters to go to Damascus and so forth. So he's earnestly beholding them. There are some familiar faces because he had been a member of the Sanhedrin. There are a lot of new faces, people that he doesn't know. 
certainly who he is has spread through the Sanhedrin, you know, because he said, I got letters for you guys to go to Damascus. So they, no doubt they had been talking overnight saying he was, he was, he hated the Christians. We, we gave him permission to go. And so Paul now earnestly beholding them, and he, he's, you know, his heart is for his brethren. He's looking at them, recognizing some of them. And he begins by saying, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. So Paul starts out this way. The centurion, I mean, the, the tribune wants peace. Paul says, I've lived in all good conscience, he says, before God until this day. In other words, I didn't bring a Gentile into the temple courts. I, I, in my ministry, Paul's thinking, you know, I've, I've been to synagogues. I've shared the truth all over the, the Mediterranean world. I've done everything I could. I would never come here and, uh, and bring a Gentile. I respect this place. In the last chapter, he said he was at one time in the, in the temple and Jesus appeared to him there and spoke to him. So he gives this testimony and said, I have lived with all good conscience before God. Now, conscience, he's just talking about his conviction. He uses the word conscience 23 times in his epistles. But we have that from Paul. And conscience is good, but these guys are going to want to kill Paul with their conscience because they think he's a traitor. The Bible's always the standard. Conscience is good when it's lending itself to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then you're thinking, oh, man, I, I need to get this straight now or I need to go here. Conscience can be a good compass when someone's born again and it's guided by the Spirit. But there's all kinds of people out there on the news doing all kinds of crazy things with conscience. So it's, it's interesting to see the context Paul puts it in through his epistles. But he's saying there, I have all with all good conscience. There's nothing in me convicting me of doing something wrong. Live before God until this day. Lived and continue to live is the idea of it. And the high priest, Ananias. Now, this isn't Caiaphas or Annas from the Gospels. This is a priest that follows Ananias, I mean Caiaphas. And this guy's a brigand. This guy is carnal. This guy's mean-spirited. The, the, the Talmud says that he's a glutton. He's a huge guy. He's self-satisfying. He's cruel. He's tied in with the Romans. He's a Sadducee. But there's nothing about this man spiritual that the, that the Pharisees or anybody would admire this is about 12 years before 70 AD when the city is destroyed by the Romans. This is about, you know, eight years before 66 AD, nine years when that all begins. And during that time, this Ananias and his brother Hezekiah run into one of the, the caves around Jerusalem, one of the aqueducts. And he's killed there by some of the, the, the dagger men that are there, the Sakari. They, they hated him. They killed him. They finally got their hands. So he's killed by his own countrymen. So he says here, the high priest, he says, Ananias, he commanded them that stood by. So this is not an official meeting of the Sanhedrin where people are sitting he, he commanded some that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Um, look, then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. <laughs> you love Paul, don't you? For sittest thou to judge me after the law and then commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? Basically says, you're a hypocrite, bub. You know, and God's going to smite you within six years or so of this. He's going to be dead. He does get smitten. Um, 
but he commands him to be to be smitten in the mouth. We don't know whether that happened. It doesn't seem likely because he has a tribune there to guard him. He's a Roman citizen, and it doesn't seem like the tribune would let somebody hit Paul across the face to hit him in the mouth. Um, it tells us then that Paul said unto, you know, God is going to smite thee, thou whited wall. Now, interesting term. Uh, we have it used by Jesus in Matthew 23, where he is raking up and down the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders, and pronounces all of these woes against them. No one had ever talked to them like that before. And at one point he says, Woe unto you, you whitewashed tombs, because outwardly you look one way, but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones. Um, when the mandatory feasts were in Jerusalem, the religious leaders would go around and whitewash the tombs and, and the walls around them. Ezekiel makes mention of whited walls, but... They would do that because if you would come in contact with a tomb where there were dead bodies, you would be disqualified then from celebrating the feast and have to have to go through all these ablutions and purifications and so forth. So they would whitewash the tombs so the pilgrims wouldn't touch them. So Jesus told the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and Paul was a Pharisee, and chances are he was there personally and heard Jesus say this. He said, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look one way outwardly, but inwardly you're defiling. You're full of dead men's bones. That registered with this man. The things he didn't like to hear registered with him. Most of his sermons he stole from Stephen. Um, and he no doubt took heart of it. You know, this was stored away when he heard Jesus say it. After he gets saved, it's one of the things, no doubt, that makes him love Jesus more and more. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? It was forbidden. It shouldn't have happened. And they that stood by, again, they're not seated, they're standing there, said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Are you kidding? You do this to God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, King James, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, he says, Thou shalt not speak evil against the ruler of thy people. Exodus 28, um, it has that. So <clears throat> he says, I didn't know he was the high priest. Um, people, some people say it was because he had bad eyes. <clears throat> I think probably because the tribune had called them, this is not an official meeting of the Sanhedrin in the place where they met, where everybody had specific seats. Paul probably never saw Ananias before. When he was there, Caiaphas was still the high priest, and he had left. So he probably had never laid eyes on this guy before. And because the guy's in his civvies, they all get called down there to meet with the tribune. Paul didn't recognize, didn't have the high priest outfit on. So Paul says, hey, I didn't know he was the high priest. I understand God's word in Exodus says not to speak evil of God's uh, anointed and so forth. Don't speak evil, the ruler of thy people. Paul here respects the office and not the person that's in it. That's always a challenge for us in many ways. Uh, but Paul understood the office is appointed of God all the way back to Aaron the person that's occupying it may be a screwball, but the, the office is something that God has allowed. So he acknowledges that and says, I didn't know. By the way, that's a past perfect tense. He says, I never all along did know. So it seems like it wasn't his eyes. He really didn't know that this was the high priest. And he right away corrects that. 
It says, but then Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And he's perceiving this. Mark chapter 13 said this, when thou shalt lead, when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak, for it is not you that speaks, but the Holy Ghost. And Paul's very much in that situation, and he says he perceives, you know, in his heart, he looks around and he realizes that there are those that are Sadducees and there are those who are Pharisees. Now, the, the Sadducees were the ruling party. Um, there were less in number, but they were ruling, and the Pharisees were the majority party. Um, most of them, most of the scribes are Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, they were the conservatives. They, they were the, you know, the, the, the believers. They were the ones who believed in um, the things that the Old Testament said throughout. And the Sadducees only believed in the first five books and they paid no credence to the prophets or the historical books or the, the, the poetic books. So there's a big difference between them. And it, Paul is realizing here because he grew up in this environment he perceives that one part of them are Sadducees and the other are Pharisees. And then he cries out in the council, men, brethren, I am a Pharisee. Notice he doesn't say I was. He still considers himself. I am a Pharisee, the son of King James's Pharisee. The, the Greek is plural here. I am a Pharisee the son of, not A, the son of Pharisees, which tells us his father was a Pharisee, his grandfather was a Pharisee. There's a tremendous lineage here, so they know about Paul. I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither are there angels nor spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit there, it's spirits, whatever they might be. And there arose a great cry and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We found no evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let him fight. Don't be found to fight against God. Because the Pharisees, it tells us, they believed in resurrection. The Pharisees confess both resurrection and spiritual beings. Paul raises a Pharisee. He says, look, what's the deal? Because I believe in the resurrection, am I being called into question? And, and by the way, the Sadducees should have believed. We're told in Hebrews eleven nine that when Abraham offered Isaac, he believed because he was going to put him on the fire. And he says he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead, from ashes. So the Sadducees had that under their thumb. They should not have been adverse to resurrection because evidently the Jews believed that. Um, but in the Old Testament, you know, you have Elijah and you have Elisha raising the dead. You have the, over and over many places and specifically, you know, you have in um, Daniel... Chapter 12, the first two verses, they talk about God raising the dead, the righteous and the wicked. Many, you know, some to everlasting shame and condemn, some to glory. Um, you have Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, probably older than Genesis, as far as the writing. Uh, Job says, I wish, you know, in his suffering, God shows him, he says, I wish 
that my words were carved in stone with a chisel. I wish they were written in a book. Little did he know. He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the latter day, he's going to stand upon the earth. And I'm going to see him from myself, though this body is dissolved, these eyes, though I become worm food. He says, I know I'm going to stand in this body, resurrection, and see him for myself. So the Pharisees have taken hold of resurrection. And it's a shorter step for them in some ways to believe in Jesus. They weren't born again. That's not the point. And they didn't tie the resurrection to a savior that was coming to die for their sins. They had tied the resurrection to a general resurrection at the end of the age where people who kept the law were righteous and they would rise to glory and everlasting life. And the people who broke the law would rise to everlasting shame and contempt. So they still didn't know the grace of God and the forgiveness of the Savior. Jesus, when he's in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there, Peter, James, and John, you know, witnessing the whole thing. And then on the way down, Jesus says to those guys, do me a favor. (laughs) Don't tell anybody about this. That must have been really hard for Peter. Don't tell anybody about this till the Son of of God has risen from the dead. Son of man has risen from the dead. Now, you read it in English, it sounds one way. In the Greek, there's an eknekron, don't tell anyone till the Son of Man is risen out from among the dead. And then it says clearly that the disciples began to question, what is this rising out from among the dead? Because they thought there was one general resurrection when everybody would rise. And Jesus is talking about, no, there will be those who rise out from among the dead. Jesus himself, the first to rise on the Feast of First Fruits. Then, you know, those Old Testament saints, thank you, Matthew, Matthew, give as much information on that. Then we will be caught up. We're part of the first resurrection. The two prophets outside of Jerusalem, the Old Testament saints that are raised, those that are believers when the heaven and the earth flee away at Exodus 20. That's all part of the first resurrection. It's not an event. It's a category. But there will be those risen out from among the dead. And then finally, at the end of the great white throne, the wicked are raised to be judged. There's no one there to be saved at the great white throne. So the New Testament develops the idea of resurrection. But Pharisees believed in resurrection. They just didn't believe that the Messiah was going to come to die for sins because they couldn't keep the law. They believe when the Messiah comes, it's the end of the age. There's a resurrection, some to everlasting life and glory, some to everlasting shame and contempt. Paul realizing that because Jesus, you know, he meets him on the road to Damascus. Resurrection is very different to him at this point in time. In fact, he said that to the crowd the day before. It says, he told them Christ appeared to him and he says, He says, am I a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead? Is this why I'm being called into question? What's the problem? Pharisees believe in resurrection. And when he had so said, then there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They start going at it. And the multitude was divided. It hasn't changed. Liberals and conservatives are still fighting with each other. You know, the the agnostics and the fundamentalists. You know, there still is that tension between those who are conservative in their beliefs. They're fundamental, uh, you know. And then there's a whole liberal part of the church that doesn't care what the Bible says. And if you believe what it does, you're a fundamentalist, you're a lunatic, you're destroying everything for everybody. That hasn't changed. There's too many in the church today that do whatever they want to do. And it's not relative what the scripture says we should do. And then when there are those who take a stand and say, no, this is the word of God, there's still dissension between them between those who say there is righteousness, God wants us to live a certain way, creation is a fact, not evolution, marriage is between a man and a woman. You know, there are just those who say those things that are fundamental are hated by the liberal world. 
and because it sticks them. If they just thought we were mental cases, they'd say, oh, here, you want to, you want to, Ice cream, you know. If they just thought we were crazy, you know, they they would poor the poor people, you know. But they don't, because it isn't you and I that speak. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will will give you the words to say in that hour when you have to testify. So there's a there's a you know you're, they're kind of getting stabbed by it. It isn't just empty talk, and that's the same today. So it says there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And, and it's not, look, belief, orthodoxy determines behavior. That should be true for all of us. We're orthodox. We say we believe what the scripture says. That should determine how we live. And if we turn away from that, we're backslidden. We're prodigals. Or let a man examine himself to see if he's even in the faith. Belief determines behavior. The Sadducees were hedonists. They were immoral. The, the you know... Uh, Annas had the bazaar in the temple courts that Jesus overturned the tables and the money changers and all. They were self-serving. They thought this life is all there was. There's annihilation. When you die, you're gone. And, and, you know, belief determines behavior. The Pharisees believe something different. And because that stung the Sadducees, there was this great divide, you know, even, even before Christ's ministry was public, these two groups were divided. And the sad, you know, the, the sad thing about the Sadducees, well, they didn't believe in all those things. That's why they were sad, you see. But they're from the Zadokites. I mean, the, you know, the, amongst the priests, Zadok and his line were the most respected by the Lord. It says in Ezekiel that when the kingdom comes and Jesus is there, it says the sons of Zadok will be in the millennial temple. They will minister to the Lord and the rest of the priests are going to minister to the people. You know, we always think it's hot stuff to stand in front of people because of our egos are involved. It says, no, in the kingdom age, those of the tribe of Zadok will minister to the Lord. They're going to stand in privacy with him, look into his face, minister to him, and the rest of the Levites that God has forgiven, they're going to minister to the people. So sad then that the Sadducees have come from the Zadokites. That's their line. Pharisees, they develop all of this after the Babylonian captivity. When they come back to the land, the Pharisees were Orthodox. They are what we are. You know, we think right away legalists. We think all these wrong things in our mind. There's a part of that that's true. But the Pharisees were those who believed the word of God, wanted it copied accurately, the scribes wanted to preserve it, and thought that there was life and power in God's inspired word. So they were the orthodox guys. That's not bad, okay? Um, fundamentalism, fundamentalists, we have that today. And it doesn't, that's not a, for you and I, a New Testament term that goes kind of back to Princeton. When Princeton started to become liberal and you had godly men there that said, no, no, we believe in the fundamentals of the faith. We can't put up with this. They become the fundamentalists. So you have Robert Dick Wilson, probably the greatest philologist that, that lived, goes to Westminster with Gretchen Mation and uh, Van Til. Some of these remarkable guys go and they start Westminster Seminary. These are fundamentalists. The other people from their departments that were dispensational, they end up going to Dallas the divide was over their belief about prophecy in the end times. But these were all men that said, we believe in the fundamentals of the faith. You know, very interesting. Years ago, a Judy called, you know, it was years ago. We just come in the building, 20, over 20 years ago. 
there's this guy from Princeton who wants to talk to you, Professor Old. You know, and I'm going, oh, great, this is what I need, Professor Old. It was almost a joke. It was funny, Professor Old. I said, all right, send him. I'll talk to Professor Old. This incredible guy comes in. Now I know him today as Hughes Oliphant Old, PhD, remarkable scholar that wrote seven volumes on church worship and preaching. Just incredible guy. Um, reformed, remarkable guy, but he just came in and said, tell me what's going on. Tell me about your worship. Tell me why the church is growing. Chuck Smith is the Martin Luther of our day. Chuck Smith is in the spirit of Chrysostom and all this. He's brought exposition back to the church again. You know, just such an interesting guy. And I think the Pharisees were kind of that in their age. They, they wanted to keep the word of God, you know, literal and authoritative. Sadducees coming from the tribe of Zadok, so sad. By now, the whole, there's been hardening of the categories, you know, like hardening of the arteries. There's hardening of the categories here. The Sadducees saying, you know, there's no resurrection, there's no angels, no spirit, but the Pharisees believe in both of those things. And then there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose, and strove, saying, We don't find any evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So there, there is a very interesting position they took. Look, again, Nicodemus, art thou the teacher? In Jerusalem, Jesus said to him in John chapter 3, Supposedly, the brother, he was Nicodemus Ben-Gorion, the brother of Josephus, who was an older brother. Tradition. The third wealthiest man in Jerusalem. When he comes to the grave with Joseph of Arimathea, both of them now have become believers. And his, supposedly his daughter had the most opulent wedding that, again, that Jerusalem had ever seen. And a short time later, she's found picking barley from the, the floor of a stable. Nicodemus, everything, he lost everything of his wealth and everything because he had turned to Christ. And there was an anathema pronounced excommunication on anybody that had anything to do with Christ. Nicodemus ends up living with Gamaliel. Gamaliel he ends up living in his home with him. And today on the Roman calendar, I think it's August 3rd, is the day of Kafir, uh, Saint Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala, Saint Nicodemus of the house of Gamaliel, because it seems that's where Gamaliel took care of him. They had been so close. And no doubt he said to Gamaliel, I'm telling you, he's risen. No, I'm telling you. And Gamaliel is one of the Pharisees, one of the scribes, you know. So there had been this stirring. You have to understand, God cares about these people, legalistic people. You know, the Pharisees that are, that are liberal and unbelieving, God loves them. Today he loves them. And, and this group now, remarkably, you know, has had Peter well, first he had Jesus stand in front of them and reprove them. Then, then he has Peter on the day of Pentecost stand in front of them. Uh, then the disciples with Peter, when the man was healed with the Peter and John. Then a greater group of disciples because they're preaching. And then Paul stands in front of them here. Paul stands in front of the Sanhedrin. Paul stands in front of the crowds. Paul stands in front of the religious Jews. You know, this group of people over and over and over have received the testimony and they're refusing it. It isn't God that God doesn't love them and God doesn't reach it. How many people do you and I know we witness to them over and over and over, like on the 40th time they get saved or something, you know? It isn't that God gives up. He loves these men. Many of the priests have come to the faith by now. And Gamaliel had said the same thing earlier. Look, there's, these kind of things have risen before. Be careful lest you find yourself fighting against God. If this move's not of God, it's going to dissipate and go away. If it is of God, you're going to be found yourself fighting against God. The Pharisees say here, they say, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, it gets, gets out of hand, there arose a great dissension. 
the chief captain, now this is the tribune, fearing lest Paul should have been, look, pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down. He calls them down from up above and take him by force, because he's a Roman citizen, from among them and bring him into the castle. This is remarkable. This is the last picture we see of the most sophisticated group of religious people in the world. You, you, you look at this. This is the most respectable assembly there could be. And the last time in the Bible we get a look at them, there's a riot and they want to rip Paul in pieces. It's, it's just incredible. And this is really the last time Paul sees them too and how many of them he had known. Sad picture. You know, Claudius Lysias, our, our tribune here, gets them, the centurions, to go down and get them, bring them back into the castle where he's not chained, but he is in custody. He's under military guard, probably has a nice room and so forth. TV, everything, you know. And it says in verse 11, and the night following, not the night of the riot, you know, Lysias got to be thinking, this is my third ride in a couple days. I am not doing good here. The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. You just, you look at this, you know, and it says, Paul, no doubt, is thinking, I blew it. I had perfect opportunity to talk to the, the Jews on the feast when they were all there. I had perfect opportunity to talk to the religious leadership. And all I did was start a riot. I blew it, you know. And, and the wonderful thing is, it says Jesus stood by him. The, the, the language just indicates that Jesus came and stepped in next to him, stood by him. Look, he had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. We know that. He had appeared to Paul in chapter 18, around verse 9 there in Corinth when Paul was discouraged. And the Lord came to him and said, Paul, I have many people in this city. Don't leave. Uh, Paul tells us about a time he appeared to him in the last chapter when, again, he was praying in the temple and the Lord came to him there. I personally believe the, that he had seen the Lord when he was stoned at Lystra uh, because Paul says, I knew a man about 12 years ago, whether he was dead or alive in the body or out, I can't tell, but he saw things that are not lawful to be spoken. Now the Lord appears to him again here. And Paul's going to tell us in the end of his life in Second Timothy chapter 4, that when he was brought before Nero, he said, no man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. So there are these junctures in this man's life that are incredible. And here's Jesus, you know, how many times in our life, in the hardest circumstance, when we think, I've blown it. You know, I've blown it. I wanted to do what was right, but I've blown it. It's the same Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, who doesn't love Paul more than he loves us. How many times in our lives could we, and maybe not explain it to somebody else, could we say, you know what? The Lord stood by me. He was there. A bad circumstance, bad health, betrayal, accident. And, and we'll constantly hear people say, but the Lord's presence... I kind of wouldn't go back. I wouldn't trade it away because of the Lord's presence. He was there. He's the same. Luke wrote this to us. He wasn't there. When they get moving to Caesarea, and Luke's with them there for about two years, no doubt writing the gospel, he must have told Luke, man, when, they, when Luke must have said, what, what went on when they took in the fortress? He, he must have said, Luke, just... The night after I got back, I was there, and I was, I was bummed. My heart was broken, and Jesus came, like he always does. He came, and he stood with me. And he says to Paul, be of good cheer. Now, he doesn't say cheer up, 
you know. He says, be of good courage. And it's a, it's a present imperative there. He says, you must continue to be of good courage, Paul. This has to happen in your life. And evidently, Paul really needed to hear that. He says, you've given testimony of me here in Jerusalem. The, the Greek is, you have fully testified of me in Jerusalem. Jesus saw his, his people that he loved, the Jewish people in the temple courts, hear this testimony. Jesus saw the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees who he loved have this testimony. And to Jesus, Paul had fully testified of him in Jerusalem. He saw it much differently. But then he says, but you're also going to go now and testify of me in Rome. So he says with a present imperative, you must, that's the imperative part of it, present, you must continually be of good courage because you're going to go to Rome. Paul had already written the Roman epistle by this time. And in his heart, he had already talked, you know, that he wanted to go to Rome. He writes to them, he says about his prayers, making requests, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by, by our mutual faith, both you and I. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise, so as much as in, is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel unto you that are in Rome as well. So it had been on Paul's heart. God had put it there. He might be thinking at this point, well, that's the end of that, you know. And the Lord says, no, you gave great testimony here, and you're going to preach the gospel in Rome as well. But for that to happen, you must continue to be of good courage. Because it was going to be years before he got to Rome. It was going to be through shipwreck. It was going to be being held and appearing before Felix and so forth in Caesarea. You know, this was going to be a long journey. You think if the Lord says to you, cheer up, you're going to go to Rome, you're thinking LL, American Airlines. You know, this is going to be great. Nice hotel. You know, no. no the, the things that would happen to him in the meantime, and, you know, he writes his prison epistles. He changed the world through the difficulties that he goes through. So Jesus amazingly stands by him. Incredible. And he says, be of good courage, Paul. And you think, how many are in heaven now because of his testimony in Jerusalem and in Rome? How far did that go, or the ripples of that and so forth? For as thou hast fully testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness at Rome. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So this is 40 Sadducees. And they say, we're not going to eat or drink till we kill Paul. That's why they're sad, you see. Uh, you know, they said that, but the high priest, who was a Sadducee, had the right to break their oath if he wanted to. So they didn't like, they knew they weren't going to starve to death. You know, you can go a long time without eating. You go three or four days without drinking and you get dehydrated, you're in trouble. So, but these guys took an oath. We're not going to eat or drink till we kill this guy. But the problem is it's 40 against one. God said, you're going to Rome. These 40 guys said, we're going to kill them in Jerusalem. And they're outnumbered. When it, whenever it's you and the Lord, everybody else is outnumbered. 
That's just the way it is. So they're going to kill Paul. <laughs> God, Jesus said to him, cheer up, Paul. Be of good courage. And these guys are saying, we're going to kill this guy. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders. And you just imagine this. And they said, now we've bound ourselves under a great curse. They pronounced anathema on themselves. And that, that word's in the, that's, let us be eternally damned if we don't do this. And as Sadducees, it didn't matter because they didn't believe in eternal life or resurrection anyway. But it says, they came to the chief priests and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. It's us or him. We've had it. Now, therefore, what we want you to do, may imagine this, this is so corrupt, they're telling the high priest what they want him to lie about. Now, therefore, ye, with the council, signified to the chief captain, to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, that he should bring him down unto you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. He's frustrated every time he tries. There's a riot. He, you know, Claudius really wants to know what in the world's going on. So we want you guys to tell him to bring Paul down so that you can clear things up. And we, before ever they come near, we're ready to kill him. So we're going to get him on the way. There's 40 of us. We're going to get close enough. We're going to kill him on the way down. Now, remarkably, verse 16. And when Paul's sister's son heard about it, their plan, their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle to Uncle Pauly. You know, this is just unbelievable. Paul's sister's son. So evidently he has a sister living in Jerusalem. Perhaps he had stayed with her when he was in the school of Gamaliel. Perhaps his nephew is in the school of Gamaliel. Perhaps they're both believers. Um, he mentions two kinsmen in Romans 16. Um, Annius and Julius, I think, he says, Junius, he says, my kinsmen who were in the faith before I was. So it may be that Paul's sister and his nephew were born again before he was. We don't know. We don't know if they are saved. It's conjecture. But it, it is pretty obvious that he has a sister living there. And even if she's not a believer, she loves her troublemaking brother. You know, there's just something about him that she loves. So she sends her son, Paul's nephew, because she heard about the plan. Now, what happened was the Sanhedrin, these guys went home after they made this deal. We're going to kill them. And their wives said, what are you doing today? Nothing. Don't tell me that. You know, just come on. You look weird. What were you guys talking about today? So somehow it got to some of the wives. And they were sworn to secrecy. You know, and a secret is something you tell to one person at a time. So somehow it gets to Paul's sister. You know, the word spreads this big secret plan. And then somehow this is the Lord opening up the water spout, you know, his sovereignty. And then his nephew comes to the Antonio Fortress and asks to see him. And, wants to, and, to, and he told Uncle Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions. So he's not chained. He calls, summons a centurion unto him and said, he gives him an order. Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So the centurion took him and brought him to the chief captain, Claudius Lysias, and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto you. How young he is, we're not sure. This can be anything really up to 30, but it seems in our context we have a young man because look in verse 19. It says, then the chief captain, the tribune, took him by the hand. You don't do that to a grown man. You're a soldier. You do that to a boy. 
He took him by the hand and he went aside privately and he asked him, what is it that you have to tell me? So that's where we are. We can't finish that tonight. Next week, we're going to follow Paul with 470 guards heading towards Caesarea. We'll put the map back up so I can show you where he was going next week. But just what a remarkable, remarkable picture. You know, again, how often the Lord would stand by us when we think we're a bad testimony. We got a chance to witness and it didn't go anywhere. How often he would stand by us when we're in some dungeon. There are all different kinds of incarceration some people it's drugs, some people it's alcohol, some people it's pornography, some people it's hatred, some people it's lust, it's envy. It can be all different things. And there are many times where the Lord then will come and stand by us. Many times he won't say you, give, you gave a good testimony, but he never gives up on us. He's committed unto us to continue his work until that day. I just think anyone here tonight who feels like maybe I'm in that place, you know, I've blown it. I thought I could do this for the Lord. I thought I could give good testimony. I thought I could get this done and it backfired. You might just sit tonight before you go to bed quietly and talk to your Savior. And he might say to you, you must continue to be of good courage. You can't throw the towel in here. What, are you going to become a Buddhist? You know, you know even Peter said, who, has, who else has the words of eternal life, you know? Um, just talk to him. If you're in that dungeon, if you're in that dark place, whatever it is, it can have all different contexts. It says Jesus stepped in and was with him there. And he will step into our lives as well. And you, you and I both know that over, over the years, there have been times for all of us. Hard days, hard weeks, hard months, when all of a sudden the Lord, in some gracious way, manifests himself to our hearts or our minds. Or we sat alone reading the scripture and some verse rose off the page and became alive. And tears began to flow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has Luke put his quill to the page and record this for us so that we can have this. Luke wasn't there. Paul had to tell him what happened. Jesus wanted to make sure that got out. The rumor about him getting killed, that leaked out. But Jesus wanted to make sure this leaked out. That this is how he is. This is what he does. This is how he cares. And when you get filled with that, then it can leak out everywhere else as well. Amen? You know, there's, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There needs to be another pandemic. You know, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, faith. Against such things, there's no law. You can't give somebody the measles unless you got it. Right? Are you contagious? Do you got it? Is Jesus real enough in your lives that it overflows? People are not just interested in just information. We should all have a systematic theology. But the greatest theology there is, is a relationship with the risen Savior. Greatest relationship, greatest theology, a reality. Let's stand and let's pray, then we'll worship. Lord, I think of how many times in my life you have been this portrait here in my life. And Lord, you know, as you look across this room, we see a lot of people. You see a room filled with individuals. You know each individual story. You know what person in what place in the room tonight is, is, is burdened with the greatest amount of heartache. You, you know which one of us are, are dealing with the greatest discouragement. You know, which one of us just are feeling tremendous weakness that needs your strength and know your glory is sufficient. And Lord, you, you give us these things in Scripture and we have secular then historians writing about the reality, Lord. 
But the light of it and the power of it and the truth of it is from your word and your spirit. So, Lord, here we are, these last days. Everything around us looks like it's dissolving and disintegrating and threadbare. But you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. The blessed hope we have still stands in front of us. And, Lord, it shines brighter and brighter and brighter in these days. And we thank you for it, Lord. We lift to you, as brothers and sisters, we lift to you every broken heart in this room, every one that's going to take this to themselves tonight, Lord. Let it be alive and powerful. We trust you to do that, Lord Jesus, because of your love. We pray in your name. Amen.